today I want to show you how this new medium arist aristocratic Victorian women invented, photo collage, allowed them to both play with society and play with photographic meaning. They kept these compositions in albums that you can see in cases throughout the show and used them to entertain their families and friends, to comment on society and toy with the social order, and to display their wit and social accomplishments and artistic accomplishments. These photo collages remind us that the Victorians were not as repressed or restricted as is still commonly believed. On the contrary, they were playful, silly, even a little subversive. Moreover, this combination of photographic facts and painted fictions enabled an entirely new kind of representation. It challenged some of the conventions and latent assumptions about photography, overturning the perception of the medium as a truthful record of time and place, bound to the representation of visible facts. Just one generation out from the invention of photography, Victorian photo collage reveals a remarkably advanced sense about the fluidity of photographic meaning and expression. The making and viewing of aristocratic albums cannot be fully understood apart from the context of social class in Victorian England. The upper 10,000, as the English aristocracy and landed gentry were commonly called, controlled both politics and society. Society revolved around the London season, as it was called, during the late spring and summer, and rural country house life or continental travel for much of the rest of the year. So during this season, which is when Parliament was in session, families took houses in fashionable quarters of London and embarked on a series of concerts, art exhibitions, sporting events, dinners, and balls, like the one that you see memorialized here. One primary goal of the social season was to produce marriages. After having been presented at court and introduced to society, young ladies met suitable men at private parties and dances. The social schedule was exhausting, and aristocrats retreated in the fall to country houses and estates scattered across England, where they enjoyed outdoor games and long visits that might culminate in a ball or a private theatrical. It was also in the country house that women with a little more time on their hands likely worked on the photo collage albums featured here. So 19th century women of a certain class would not have learned cooking or cleaning. They had a retinue of servants to do that. Instead, they would have been trained in a variety of appropriate skills like playing musical instruments, speaking French and other languages, dancing, needlework, and a variety of hostessing duties. They also learned the fine arts of painting and drawing. Drawing, acknowledged as a polite and useful art, was a sign of refined nature and talent. Many young amateurs became quite skilled in pen and ink and watercolor and kept their compositions in albums for display among friends and family. But when photographs were added to these compositions, however, something strikingly different happened. The cavalier snipping of photographs to paste into watercolor scenes would have been impossible without the rise of the carte de visite photograph a commercial photographic portrait about the size of a baseball card. And in the show, you can see an uncut sheet like this and then scattered CDVs in a case and in an album. So you can see the raw materials that they're working from. Inexpensive, easily transportable, and reproduced in massive quantities. 
The carte de visite was the most popular form of photographic portraiture throughout the 1860s. The new format was the result of a special camera with four lenses and a plate holder that could be moved from one side to the other, allowing one exposure on each half of the plate. So a single plate of the entire, a single print of the entire plate would thus yield eight different pictures, such as you see there, that could be cut up and mounted. With so many negatives to print from, the reproductive capacity of the carte de visite increased tremendously over that of any other portrait medium. The small pictures could also be made quite inexpensively, with a dozen costing about 12 shillings in England, which was basically a price accessible to the middle class. This is a page of cartes de visite from Lady Filmer's family album, and the, her, some of her works are in the show. I want you to remember this guy here, because he'll come up later. Um, taking their cue from aristocratic painted portraits, Carte de visite most commonly showed a full-length vertical pose, which presented the whole of the sitter's body and dress for the scrutiny of the viewer. The goal of the carte de visite, as of photographic portraiture in general, was to obtain the proper combination of an accurate likeness and an elevated expression, in keeping with the belief that outer features were clues to inner character. With conventionalized poses, lighting, props, and backgrounds, these repetitive portraits bore codes of middle-class gentility that were later casually discarded by the makers of photo collages when they trimmed out the studio background. Millions of photographs of middle-class sitters as well as of royalty and other public figures were made and distributed with a pervasiveness that was nothing short of astonishing. Sitters would purchase their portraits by the dozens and distribute them to friends and family, receiving in exchange cartes de visite for their own collections. This gave rise to the first photograph albums. Acquiring photographs became a distinctly social activity, and the craze for collecting portraits became known as cartomania. An 1862 article reported that the chains of connection from sitter to album keeper we're growing ever weaker, and I just want you to remember this is 1862, so almost 150 years ago, and I quote, the demand for photographs is not limited to relations or friends. It is scarcely limited to acquaintances. Anyone who has ever seen you, or has seen anybody that has seen you, or knows anyone that says he has seen a person who thought he has seen you, <laughs> considers himself entitled to ask you for your photograph. The claimant does not care about you or your likeness in the least, but he or she has got a photograph book, and as it must be filled, you are invited to act as padding to that volume." <laughs> End quote. Well, there, you took my punchline. This may sound familiar <laughs> to those of you with a Facebook account <laughs> who have found yourself friended by your niece's coworker, your college roommate's brother, 150 years before Facebook. Whether employing cartes de visite or amateur portraits of friends and family, the society women who made photo collages created something rather different from typical middle-class albums. By cutting out photographs, pasting them into albums, and surrounding them with innovative watercolor drawings, photo collage producers transformed the democratic, mechanical, and reproducible photograph into an object that was aristocratic, handmade, and unique. 
photo collage albums were removed from the commerce of the masses and instead became vehicles to display aristocratic female accomplishments. Moreover, these photo collages undermined the rather serious conventions of portrait photography that commercial studios had established. While photographs for the middle classes signified stability, respectability, family, and assimilation, photo collages gleefully signaled wit, leisure, cultural references, social status, and exclusivity. With photo collage, aristocratic Victorians could toy with society. In fact, when you look at the imagery of photo collages together, what emerges is an overriding concern with social class. And we can read these images as a collective self-portrait of the Victorian aristocracy at play. We see urban entertainments along with more private amusements and games enjoyed by the upper classes, including archery, croquet, lawn tennis, and fox hunting. Portraits are combined with key objects in daily social life, such as umbrellas, jewelry, china, and playing cards. Photographs standing for ancestral paintings on the walls of great estates would have been readily understood as signifying both the material wealth of their present and the genealogical continuity of their past. And fantastical scenes reference contemporary visual, uh, Victorian visual and intellectual culture, from fairy tales to Punch magazine to Charles Darwin. As Victorian women carefully placed cut-out photographs into these painted scenes, they could define themselves as part of this society, but also manipulate it with great wit and humor. Hmm. So if this were advancing, it would be showing you a scene <laughs> from Lady Filmer's uh, drawing room. Want to give me a hand here? So there's a, there's a loose page that's up on the walls of the exhibition that shows a drawing room um, made by Lady Filmer. And we're just stuck on that. In um, this, this vivid um, pink and blue setting. Oh, so what did you do? I think you just need to stay here for a little bit. Okay. Okay, that's what I had. So, all right, anyway, there's the picture I was talking about. <laughs> So, we'll, we'll grab Harry back when we need him. Uh, many photo collages take place in the domestic drawing room, which was the most public room of the house, the place where visitors could be received and where women would show off their refined taste in furnishings and their ability to attract the, quote, right kind of people. The drawing room was the place where amateur, amateur theatricals might be staged and was likewise a social staging ground for Victorian women. So take, for example, this scene by Lady Filmer, a minor aristocrat who used her beauty and cleverness to advance through the ranks of society. It's a simple gathering of friends and family with Lady Filmer herself arranged near the drawing room's center table. There she is. The table features a photo collage album along with the tools of its making, a paper knife and paste pot, as if to remind us how central an album was to one's personal presentation to the world. But wait, this is no ordinary group. Albert Edward, the Prince of Wales, a highly sought-after guest and an impressive coup for any society hostess, leans jauntily against the table in the center of the room. The prince, whose mother, Queen Victoria, did not give him much to do, was known in his day for his appetite for both food and women and was something of a playboy. 
So if you've ever seen photographs of him later as King Edward, you'll remember that he became quite portly. Lady Filmer here has done him the service of trimming his girth with a carefully placed cut to the waist. <laughs> Over there. This is perhaps the first instance of Photoshop for making somebody thinner. <laughs> it gets better. <laughs> now, <laughs> now, Lady Filmer and the Prince of Wales enjoyed a well-known flirtation, one that was conducted in part through the exchange of photographs, and his likeness appears frequently in her album. His larger figure contrasts with the more diminutive one of her husband, <laughs> Sir Edmund Filmer, who is seated in the lower right corner near the dog. <laughs> and you might remember him from Lady Filmer's family album that I highlighted earlier. <laughs> See, they were not all buttoned up, as you might think. This collage stages a visit that may or may not have actually taken place, either serving as a reminder of their flirtation or perhaps proof that it was all being conducted on the up and up, in full view of her husband, friends, and extended family. Displaying it in her album allowed Lady Filmer to exhibit her accomplishment in painting, but also her cleverness in arranging the photographs, giving her viewers who were in on the joke a little thrill. Photo collages such as Lady Filmer surely meant to amuse themselves and their visitors, and did so by, by manipulating photographs and thereby manipulating society with a knowing wink. It's important to note that although these photo collages were produced in the home, the life that they portray is actually rarely the cloistered domestic interior that was said to be the domain of women. Instead, it is notable that when photographic portraits are set in realistic scenes, the scene is often the public sphere. In many of these compositions, men and women are depicted in leisure activities on the London streets, attending the theater, even roller skating, and there's, it's hard to see, but they're on little tiny painted roller skates. Other photo collages, <laughs> such as this scene of lawn tennis, record the pleasures of country house life, perhaps documenting actual visits, perhaps just alluding to fun that was had. Several collages reference the new craze for croquet. Croquet had recently emerged as an amusing pastime, which, as it was originally played on the lawns of country estates, implicitly signaled wealth and land ownership. Most of all, though, croquet provided ample time for men and women to mingle while participating in a sanctioned activity. Would-be couples might spend hours searching for a ball that had been knocked into the underbrush. <laughs> Poems, I can see where this audience is heading, by the way. <laughs> this is a, a quality lecture. Poems. <laughs> Stories and articles of the day explicitly linked croquet and courtship. A spoof on the history of the game noted that, quote, its practice sometimes leads to matrimony, more often to serious flirtation, and is generally a very fair excuse for an hour or two's trifling on a hot summer's afternoon, end quote. And in fact, none of the people shown in this verdant lawn seem much interested in the game of croquet itself. In the images we've seen thus far, the collagist may be taking liberties with how they place people in their newly invented settings, but for the most part, the sitters are still recognizably themselves in more or less plausible situations. 
But the Victorians were not content to simply manipulate people in different social situations. They also combined them with things, often related to games. Card playing was a common leisure pastime in Victorian high society and also provided opportunities for socializing. Cartes de visite, which were also called card pictures, easily replaced the heads of kings, queens, and knaves, giving new meaning to the term face cards. By showing people as cards in a single deck, the collagist also depicts them as belonging to the same set, in other words, part of the same social circle. In this collage, a painted hand emerges from the page, holding five cartes de visite in a fan, as one might hold a hand of cards. Below, you can see a pair of dice, a card from each suit, gambling chips, and the suggestive words, what are trumps? The page evokes high-stakes gambling, fate, and flirtation, suggesting that one chosen person will inevitably wield the power of the trump card. The young Ava McDonald, the maker of this photo collage and witness to adult revelry, depicts herself as a gambling chip at the bottom left, and perhaps she is the prize. In some of the more remarkable photo collages, people are combined with a variety of domestic or fashionable objects. Take the popular sport of archery. It was seen in Victorian times as an elegant game that got women out into the fresh air and revealed grace and skill. <laughs> but, but what are we to make of this psychologically charged image where a face becomes a target? Unfortunately, as you can see, the arrows seem to have missed the bullseye. In other instances, collages combined photographs with objects held close to the body, such as fans, jewelry, and umbrellas. Fans were often considered extensions of the ladies who wielded them, enabling a silent, nuanced language for discreet flirtation and as a necessary accoutrement to fashion. Indeed, some fans were decorated with actual photographs, and so these collages may not be that far-fetched. Likewise, the elaborate collages of jewelry bearing photographs in place of precious stones are part invented, part naturalistically represented. Photographs had been included in jewels since photography's beginnings. Intimately worn, such jewelry not only displayed wealth and fashion, but also kept a beloved's or a deceased's portrait near to the heart. By the mid-19th century, the umbrella was a common accessory for both sexes, having originated as the more feminine parasol. It was a useful object in bad weather, of course, but it was also handy for facilitating courtship. One contemporary song told the story of lovers caught in a rainstorm, brought together under the sheltering coziness of the umbrella. And I quote, it so occurred as they did walk and viewed each veil so flowery, as Simon by her side did stalk, declared the sky looked showery. The rain came to her like a drug when loudly he did bellow, look here, my love, we can be snug. I've brought an umbrella. <laughs> Lady Filmer employed the umbrella in a collage featuring the Prince of Wales twice here and here, both in the body of the umbrella and in its handle, which would be held and caressed by the umbrella's owner, and perhaps hinting that she could handle him. If photographs in an album already evoked the physical presence of the people pictured, combining them in photo collages with images of such corporeal objects, and thus hints of the body that might have possessed and touched them, must have heightened their tactile and evocative effects. 
A remarkable number of images found in photo collage albums combine humans and animals in fantastical ways. One motif that appears in numerous photo collage albums of the period is spider webs, perhaps to underscore the social webs of connection that women were charged with maintaining. The sticky spider web was also an apt metaphor for the album itself, with the album maker, the spider, always eager to catch more prey. In common family albums, you might often find this poem opening the volume. It might be on a carte de visite. Uh, yes, this is my album, but learn ere you look that all are required to add to my book. You are welcome to quiz it. The penalty is that you add your portrait for others to quiz. So there was a reciprocal relationship to viewing a photograph album. The viewer would eventually add her own carte de visite and become the viewed. Princess Alexandra seems to have been successful in ensnaring photographs in her album web, with more than 20 portraits on this page alone. <laughs> Animals had long been used to morally instructive ends in fables and fairy tales. Then, as now, they possessed symbolic characteristics, with a dog signifying loyalty and a fox indicating cunning, for example. Birds were employed as metaphors for women in 19th century England in a variety of ways. Victorians admired women's nest building habits, adopted the birdcage as a symbol for the home, and connected fashion with bright plumage. But I must confess I have not yet figured out what the combination of a turtle and a flamingo signifies. More striking than the frequent presence of animals, however, are the ways in which they are merged with human faces. In this regard, many of the photo collages echo caricatures from Punch, which often attached human heads to snail bodies, placed comically large beaks on human faces, and dressed animals in bankers' clothes. As a satirical and descriptive tool, such hybrids could deliver a pronouncement with cutting wit. The meanings of a turkey, for example, were similar in the 19th century to the meanings we have today. Now, imagine, for example, that you have gone to the photographer's studio in your finest clothes and have posed against a column or balustrade for a lengthy exposure. You receive a dozen very respectable cartes de visite and decide to distribute one of them to your friend Kate Goff, the witty and urbane daughter of an industrialist. Sometime later, you pay her a visit and take a look at the album that she's been working on, only to find that your head <laughs> has been unceremoniously placed on the body of a duck gliding on the pond. <laughs> now, in all fairness, she has included herself in the picture as the front duck, so you really shouldn't be too insulted. You are just now all part of the same joke. The temptation to cut out a photographed head and place it atop a painted animal seems to have been almost irresistible. This metamorphosis from animal to human may have been inspired by the new theories of evolution put into circulation by Charles Darwin. And in fact, during the heyday of photo collage, Darwin's ideas about man's connection to the family of apes would have been nearly impossible to avoid. Within a decade of the 1859 publication of On the Origin of Species, there were 16 different editions in England and the United States, and the elite members of society who made photo collages most certainly would have read and discussed the provocative ideas. The 1871 publication of The Descent of Man renewed the controversy. 
Victorians would have encountered Darwinian tropes in more indirect and commercial ways as well, in caricatures, songs, and written satire in the popular press, but also through such varied activities as buying a statuette of a monkey contemplating a human skull, reading a popular romance titled Survival of the Fittest, or commissioning Wedgwood designs of cherubs around the tree of life. This evolutionary tree came to stand for the primary message of Darwinism, and Darwin himself was often portrayed as a monkey sitting or swinging in a tree. So when Kate Goff, in the same album that features that duck collage, portrayed her own family as painted monkeys with photographed human faces huddled together on sturdy branches, the illusion was manifestly clear. Goff's family tree cleverly links her own personal genealogy with a global one, displaying both her knowledge of the latest scientific theories and a witty self-deprecation. Album makers also used photo collage to create fantastical scenarios starring intimate friends and family. Absurd imagery was not unusual in the context of Victorian visual culture, especially children's literature. For example, Edward Lear's nonsense books featuring line drawings of people with absurdly long noses or button-sized heads, poems such as The Owl and the Pussycat, and nonsense alphabets were remarkably well-received and influential in the 1860s and 1870s. Some of the surrealism apparent in photo collage compositions can also be attributed directly to newly popular fairy tales, such as those by the Brothers Grimm and Hans Christian Andersen. In Anderson's stories, transformations abound, from a mermaid changing into a human or an ugly duckling growing into an elegant swan. One of the most popular was the tale of Thumbelina, a tiny girl who was born from a tulip flower. In the story, after escaping an evil toad who kidnaps her, she is saved from having to marry an old blind mole by a swallow that she has nursed back to health. The swallow carries her on his back to the land of sunshine, where she meets a group of fairies living in flowers and marries the king. Kate Goff based one of her photo collages on a published illustration of the tale, replacing the drawn children with photographs and depicting a young girl swooping in on a swallow's back to find two other children emerging from morning glory blossoms. The fairy tale setting was an attractive one for compositions featuring children. And even Princess Alexandra made an album page with her children nestled among flower buds and toadstools. Photo collage was especially well-suited for placing children in miniaturized landscapes, charming, but also dreamlike and bizarre, and completely impossible in straight photography. The nonsense and dreamscapes of Lewis Carroll, himself an amateur photographer, provided another source for some of the more fantastical photo collages that have been found in albums. Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, illustrated with drawings by Punch's John Tenniel, was published in late 1865. Within a few years, numerous printings followed, and by 1884, over 100,000 copies of the tale were in circulation. With puns and wordplay, misunderstandings, references to dreams and bizarre transformations, it is filled with delightful nonsense for children and inside jokes for adults. The connection between Carol's tale and photo collage can be seen most explicitly in this page from the Bouverie album. Here's a little detail of the page and a, a picture from the original drawing. 
The maker of this album copied Tenniel's drawings and substituted photographs of various children for the character of Alice in such scenes as her meeting with the Cheshire Cat, the Caterpillar, and the Mock Turtle and Griffin at the Mad Hatter's Tea Party. The collages thus offered up a personal reinterpretation of a popular Victorian culture, of popular Victorian culture, while enhancing the strangeness of the story by replacing the central figure with loved ones in the fantastic scenes. But the Alice story is also a useful lens for understanding the strange and unusual qualities of photo collage. The scale shifts experienced by Alice throughout her adventures. She grows and shrinks depending on what she consumes. Mirror those in album pages as portraits are cut from their backgrounds and placed in miniature in invented settings. Common games are given a surreal twist in this story as in the Queen of Hearts game of croquet with flamingos for mallets and hedgehogs for balls. Or the playing cards that are themselves people with heads atop their flat forms and arms and legs at the corners, combinations reminiscent of photo collage. And of course, just as the queen recklessly demands the beheading of insubordinates and Alice with the refrain, off with her head, decapitation becomes a prominent theme in photo collage compositions. In many of these albums, photographed heads are severed from their bodies, and if they are not plunked indiscriminately upon some other painted body, seem to float about Freely. <laughs> the new medium of photo collage was wonderfully suited for compositions of the surreal and fantastic. Indeed, the chance to combine photographic portraits with painted settings inspired dreamlike and often bizarre results. The fantastical possibilities of this hybrid art form must have allowed for great visual and social pleasure on the part of the, both the maker and the viewer of photo collage albums. Although the contents of the albums, leisure activities and amusements, fashionable objects of daily life, and knowing allusions to Victorian visual culture, enmesh Victorian women in the norms of contemporary society, the photo collages nevertheless seem to play with the social order from which they emerged. Through wit and humor, incongruous juxtapositions, and a playful irreverence toward the photographic image, assemblers of photo collage found the freedom to maneuver their peers and reorder society. At the same time, they played with photographic meaning, demonstrating quite early in the medium's history a complex grasp of the possibilities of photography. Photo collage allowed, even encouraged them to expand the limitations of photography to incorporate fantasy, dreamscapes, whimsy, and humor. Indeed, this was all the more effective because of the power a photographic portrait had to anchor a specific sitter in reality. The overarching ethos of photographic portraiture, and especially the commercial carte de visite, was one of accurate portrayal. Commentators marveled at the fidelity of the small pictures and at the pleasure of possessing the likenesses of loved ones. Millions of viewers looked to photographs as faithful mementos that would help them recall the features of the sitter. In her landmark 1857 essay on the suitable aspirations of photography, Lady Eastlake argued that the new medium filled a public craving for, quote, cheap, prompt, and correct facts. Photography was of immeasurable importance to knowledge and society, but as a machine lacking human judgment and taste, 
photography could never be capital A art. As Lady Eastlake remarked about photographic portraits, quote, what indeed are nine-tenths of these facial maps but accurate landmarks and measurements for loving eyes and memories to deck with beauty and animate with expression in perfect certainty that the ground plan is founded upon fact? Despite the admonitions of Lady Eastlake and others, there were several photographers of the period who attempted to elevate the medium to the level of art precisely by bypassing its factual nature. Lewis Carroll and Julia Margaret Cameron, for example, notably staged sitters before the camera in allegorical or literary scenes. Gustave Legray corrected photography's technical limitations by printing in a cloud-filled sky from a second negative over the reflective sea. And Oscar Gustav Rylander and Henry Peach Robinson combined several different negatives in the darkroom to create elaborate photographic narratives. In these combination prints, Rylander and Robinson attempted to add imagination to fact, to make something that seemed like it had happened in front of the camera, but was more perfect than any single photograph would allow. The key here was to make the picture both plausible and seamless. As Robinson put it, quote, no two things must occur in one picture that cannot happen in nature at the same time. Robinson urged harmony and unity in composite pictures, a smoothing out of the edges between negatives. By introducing drawn or painted elements to the page, however, producers of photo collage freed their images from the need to depict photographable reality and made no attempt at seamlessness. The makers didn't care about undermining the truth value of the pictures they played with. Rather, the photograph's inherent truthfulness, its essential factualness, was central to the social impact of photo collage. It was precisely the contrast of real, identifiable portraits of family and society members with their fantastically painted settings that made photo collage so simultaneously pointed and appealing. The many ways in which photographs were used in these compositions attest to both the fluid meanings of the photographic image in the 19th century and to the sophistication of viewers, of makers and viewers of photo collages. There are scenes like Lady Filmer's drawing room or other collages that depict society members in various activities, amusements, and public places in which the photograph acts as a substitute for the person or thing depicted, a surrogate reality. Thus, a portrait of the Prince of Wales included in a collage of a drawing room is intended to represent the prince in that space. In other instances, however, Photographs collapse distinctions between representation and the thing itself. In these cases, photographs serve as themselves, common photographic images printed on a piece of paper, as when cartes de visite emerge from drawn envelopes, or when photographs are pasted into paintings of albums, and here the illusion is heightened because the pages of this painted album actually turn. When photographs replace painted portraits on an easel or above a mantle, they also represent images, but now painting and photography have been merged into a recognizable shorthand of visuality. The photograph can function as an object to be played with at will, as when this gesture scatters them on the ground as if sowing seeds. Some collages explicitly equate the photographed head with other spherical objects, 
showing them juggled in the air like so many balls. Or photographs can serve a purpose that is simply decorative, forming the face of a clock, for example, or embellishing a teacup. Sometimes, however, these multiple layers of photographic representation exist simultaneously in a single composition. When, for example, some photographs stand in for people in a drawing room at the same time that others act as images on the walls of the room. In instances such as these, the Victorian collagist proves herself capable of a multi-leveled perception of the photographic image, able to see at once the subject represented and a picture of the subject. The combination of photographs with painted elements also provided a way to depict scenes that would have been technically impossible for photography at the time. Photocollage introduced color to images that remained stubbornly black and white in the 1860s and 1870s. And the medium corrected the technical shortfall of motion capture in low light, showing groups of figures on moonlit nights, or a trapeze artist caught in mid-flight in a dimly lit circus hall. Attempting either one of these with photography alone would have resulted in blurry figures, if visible at all. Photocollage also allowed for repetition and doubling, as the same person or even the same photograph could appear more than once within a single composition. Kate Goff, who was an identical twin, took advantage of this confusion in an uncanny album page. A woman and her apparent mirror image stand side by side above the caption, which is which. It remains unclear whether Goff portrayed both herself and her twin sister Grace or whether she pasted down two prints of the same sitter. One might compare this, looking back, to medieval paintings in which the repetition of a single figure across the picture plane indicates an advance in a narrative over time, or looking forward to cubistic portrayals in which multiple perspectives can be made simultaneously visible. In either case, what disappears is Renaissance one-point perspective one of the hallmarks and defining features of camera imagery. Instead of attempting the seamless joining of multiple images that the proponents of combination printing had urged, makers of photocollage embraced incongruity. Collagists employed pictures of various sizes that had been made from numerous different sittings, with diverging angles and different lighting conditions, flattening the composition and creating awkward relationships among the subjects. The act of cutting up photographs and reassembling them into new combinations produced images that were never entirely coherent or whole, but rather fragmented and disjointed. Their very edges call attention to their presence as objects, shattering the illusion of representation. Victorian collagists heightened the contrast between the handmade and the optical by refusing to overpaint the photographic portraits. Although coloring them would have certainly made for a more unified composition, the photographs are almost always left unpainted to emphasize their representation of identifiable sitters, their very mechanical factualness. The fictions of the page, the painted portions, act as narrative or at least decorative glue that attempts to unite disparate images and people that may never have actually been together. For a Victorian viewer of photo collage albums, Comprehending these images must have meant a welcoming of contrasts, a juggling of the real and the fantastic, and an understanding that the originally intended meaning could be transformed dramatically in a new setting. 
For the maker of Victorian photo collage, that was precisely where the pleasure lay. In removing a photograph from its truthful mooring and reinserting it into fantasy, collages were not aspiring to the artistic heights promised by Rylander and Robinson. In fact, outside of certain rarefied circles, it is unlikely that people ever really saw these designs. Rather, they aimed to amuse and entertain, to commemorate and strengthen relationships, to simultaneously display social belonging and toy with that social order. When album makers combined the facts of photography with the fictions of painting, they created a new kind of representation, one that changed the rules of photography in a variety of ways. If photography in the mid-19th century was generally understood to represent accuracy, fidelity to nature, and representational stability, photo collage undermined these values to the point of caricature. Instead of standing intact as images that referred to a person in a specific time and place, photographic portraits took on new meanings in newly invented contexts. Studio portraits possessed their own conventions that could be easily read, a form of self-presentation inflected with middle-class respectability. But these were carelessly discarded by aristocratic collagists who snipped away at photographs to keep only what they desired. A single point of view made by a faithful recorder was replaced by numerous images made from multiple perspectives. The typical family album was an artless record of the faces of friends and family, but photo collage albums were filled with staged encounters and dreamlike visions. Even before Lady Eastlake wrote her commentary on photography, Victorians had come to associate photography with fact. Only one generation out from photography's invention, they were somehow capable of seeing photography as a tool for manipulating in the visual representation of fiction. These early experiments in photo collage may have been symptomatic or even unwittingly productive of the kind of fluid understanding of photographic meaning that would later dramatically blossom in the 20th and 21st centuries with significant repercussions. Now, lest you think I'm ending on too serious a note, I want to leave you with this image that seems to summarize the bizarre and humorous qualities of photo collage. Perhaps this refers to a parlor game called Mixed Pickles, in which players selected strips of paper with phrases on them from a jar to form random sentences. Perhaps there is a social message here, as the Earl of Yarborough, husband of the countess who made this collage, attempts to spear and then devour his guests, including Lady Filmer, with a pickle fork, or perhaps they were all just pickled. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I'll leave that on for you. I am happy to take a few questions if people have them. I should say that this, this show has been a labor of love for me, and I've worked on it for an embarrassingly long time, so I'm uh, the only expert on this very odd <laughs> art. Um, <laughs> yes? Uh, I have a question. Uh, in the show, there was a Blanche Fournier, I think, who, who did these, but other than that, it seems to have been a very anglophone thing. Can you explain why it, that would travel more about? Because certainly in other societies in Europe. Right. 
So the question is, um, is basically, is this limited to England and why, I, I think? And, um, and you brought up the example of the um, Blanche Fournier album. We call it the Madame B album because we didn't know who made it for a while. There's a big B on the opening page. Um, she's the only outlier that I've found really so far. There's, um, there's actually an album by a Canadian woman in this collection, which I don't know, Sophie, if it's some point after this you want to tell people about or if you can find online or something. Um, but the, even the Fournier album has connections to this group of people in England. She was, as far as we can tell, married to a French diplomat and stationed for a while in Sweden. And one of the, uh, the other diplomatic officials from England is a guy named William Jocelyn, who's the brother-in-law of Lady Jocelyn, whose album is in this show. So there's already there a connection. Um, I have looked in France. I have not looked really elsewhere on the continent. And I know albums pretty well in the States. It does not seem to happen anywhere else. I have some hypotheses. Um, one is that there's a class structure in place that creates this very elite group that knows each other very well, and so it doesn't disperse too much beyond there. Contrast it with the states where there's really, there's you know, something of an elite, but not really an aristocracy. Um, and the Americans are also just much more puritanical, I think. But I think there's also this uh, British visual and literary culture that lends itself to the absurd in a few ways. So through um, Edward Lear and fairy tales and Lewis Carroll and Punch magazine, there, there seems to be this prizing of wit and this um, irreverence toward uh, certain things that we might have thought as pretty off limits, like photographs. Well, it, it does seem to be mostly women. There is one example uh, in the show that was made by a male artist. Um, that's the one exception. Notably, it's bigger than the others, and it's open right now to a page focusing on people shooting guns. Um, <laughs> but um, the question of who made the pictures, almost all of the pictures are made in photographic studios. They're all commercial pictures that you could get made professionally. There are some examples of um, amateur photographers um, taking up the art, and some of them end up in here. And Lady Jocelyn, for example, is the one artist in the show who's actually a photographer. And in her album, there are her pictures as well. But mostly, the studio portraitists tended to be male. So yes, there does end up being that division of labor of men taking the pictures and women cutting them up and painting around them. The question was, how did they get them to look so flat? Well, one answer is they've been shut up in albums for 150 years. <laughs> um, the other answer is, I think that you're seeing it in a reproduction here. So when you go and see the works in the actual show, you, you can kind of see a little bit of the texture difference. OK, uh, one and then two. Quick question, you uh, attribute some to a Sackville West album. Is that related to Vita? It's her great aunt, I'm pretty sure. There's a, there's a little bit uh, in the catalog, in the back of it, there's a write-up on each of the album makers. And, um, and so it, it explains, I think, a little bit of that family tree a little bit more. 
I'm just wondering where the albums have been all these years and who the collection belongs to now. Uh, the albums in the show come from all over the place. So um, they're coming from the V&A in London, the USA in Paris, us in Chicago, um, the Getty, the uh, Harry Ransom Center in Texas. Um, there are albums also at the Royal Collection in England and um, the George Eastman House. Oh, and there's another one from the National Gallery of Australia. And then there's some private collectors. They are very hard to find right now, and I kind of hope that this exhibit shakes some more loose. I suspect that they're, they're moldering in some British attic here and there in a country house or something, but um, it's, we were very fortunate at the Art Institute to find an album in the course of the research that we acquired, the Madame B album. And, but other than that, I think it would be tough to say, okay, I'm gonna go buy a photo collage album because they, they just aren't really around there anymore. Uh, okay, one and two. <laughs> the glue, has it lost all this time or do you have to repair the glue? The question was, how has, has the glue held up? And, and it's, um, it's been remarkably good. So our conservator has looked at everything as it's come in and there's one instance where something has to be, had to be pasted back down again, but that's pretty good for all this. And again, I, I attribute that, I, I don't, it's probably, uh, like a horse hoof based glue, a gelatin based glue or something from a long time ago, but I attribute it to being flat in an album for so many years and not exposed too much. So could you all hear the question back there? Okay, um, it's, it's basically I think a question about circulation and influence. And um, yes, as far as I know, these were pretty private things. I suspect that there's a lot of sharing them in this social circle because I've seen so much repetition of motifs and in certain cases the exact same image kind of repeated. There's, there's one instance of this influencing a practice. It doesn't influence photographers. Um, the photographers are making pictures for the masses. They probably don't care too much about this practice if they know of it at all. So they're getting sitters in every half hour and churning pictures out. But um, there was an album maker, there's an album that's included in the show called the Johnstone Album that actually was made with um, lithographed pre-drawn pages that you could fill in with watercolor paints and then cut out your photographs and put in. So it's this, it's sort of the end point of the exhibit in a way because the, the artists making these work ha have taken this uh, mass-produced, commercially available imagery, cut it up and made it unique. And then somebody comes along and sees that practice and says, I'm gonna to try to make this mass produced and commercially available. And so someone has drawn images that are very much in keeping with these images and um, printed them on the pages of an album. And the other thing I, I guess I should say is I start out with Picasso and Hannah Hoch, and I, I actually don't have any evidence that anybody in the European avant-garde was looking at this stuff. Um, it's, it's more of a, a zeitgeist period I kind of thing that there was this early on a flexibility toward the parameters of photography that I think is really interesting. Well, thank you all very much. I'm happy to stick around and answer some questions. Thanks so much for coming.
Thank you so much, Liz. That was absolutely wonderful. And what an interesting glimpse into that, that world. I don't, does anybody here still make albums, apart from me? Yes. Because, <laughs> I mean, just, just, I'm just reflecting on this. There's so much in these, you know, in this digital photo age when we just, you don't even print all the photographs, you know. And I still love making albums and including drawings and sketchings and, and cutting them up and playing with them. So I'm going to go on doing it and completely inspiring. Thank you very much indeed. I think we should all go in the exhibition now. <laughs>